Greetings. This is Iapo Ngina, also known as Cassandra Floyd. Um, you are joining me, if you know, for the reading of The Great Cosmic Mother, Rediscovering the Religion of the Earth. I have been reading this book now for two weeks. I am going to be reading the complete book over time. It's going to take some time. There's 52 chapters in the book. But I have been reading this book live uh, by request because a lot of people are interested in the book, have the book, and have never read it, have the book and keep hearing about it, <clears throat> or either saw me read the book live on Facebook last year in 2020 and um, just couldn't get good audio recordings from Facebook. So I was like, you know what? I'll just go ahead and reread the whole book. So um, for those who are tuning in for the first time, a little housekeeping. Um, this book you can read online. You can, you know, get as a PDF online. Just Google The Great Cosmic Mother. And um, the and it should be the first thing that comes up is the complete PDF of the book. Um, one thing you should know, though, is that the pages in the book do not align with the pages of the book that you would get as a PDF. So you really have to pay attention to um, when I switch chapters um, because the chapters are also not numbered in the book. I have numbered them for for ease that I need but they're not numbered in the book or in the PDF. So it'll behoove you, one, to go through your book and number the chapters. Um, two, to join the Facebook book club that I have established for this book. Um, so you can go to my Facebook, which is Iapo Moyende Ngina. That's I-Y-A-P-O uh, N-G-I-N-A. And just look up my groups and it is The Great Cosmic Mother, um, the Great Cosmic Mother Book Club. And um, I think that's all in terms of housekeeping. Um, I am, I've been really kind of sporadic. I've been saying that I was going to read the book every day, except Sunday. I might go down to three days a week because it's a lot. And I have grandkids that like to bum rush my bedroom while I'm reading. So um, today I'm going to be reading chapters 11 through 14. They're relatively short chapters, and um, they're still within the context of section two of the book. So the first chapter is, and you can also use the chat. I keep the chat open. So if you have any questions, um, if you have any feedback, if you've read the book and you want to offer some dialogue, that's fine. Um, so the way I'm reading this book now is different than I read it last year. Last year when I read the book, I offered breakdowns and commentary throughout the entire book. However, I wanted it to be a lot more um, concise, which is why I started the book club. So when I am on YouTube, I am strictly reading this book. I am offering no commentary, no breakdowns. That will happen within the context of the book club. So I encourage you to go to my Facebook page, look up the details for the book club and, you know, sign in for that. So the uh, first chapter that we're going to start with today is called The Gynandrous Great Mother. In truth, Western Christianity's stereotypes of weak femininity and strong masculinity are among some of the most extreme in history. Many of these sex role traits originated among the privileged classes, 
the only people who could afford passive and dependent women and for whom a bored and indulgent lifestyle made sex role-playing an amusement. Bound feet among the wives of wealthy Chinese men of the past served the same aesthetic and entertainment function and were a sign of privilege. In the modern West, with its relative economic abundance, many strict sex role traits, once indigenous to the wealthy, have been passed on via the media to the masses, so we see female office workers tottering to the job on spiky-heeled toes, uh, spiky-heeled shoes. Such shoes were once worn only by royalty, by courtiers and their ladies, and were originally devised to be worn by sacred priests to keep their mana from escaping into the ground. One thing, quote, democracy does is spread the silliness around. Unfortunately, with many of the silliest sex roles, people tend to forget their origin and culture in class and believe they come directly from nature or from God. And so we see the silliest of customs enforced with humorless severity and sometimes the most punitive laws. Extremely sex-biased roles are the product of rigid heterosexuality, intellectual dualism, and labor-exploitive culture. They didn't exist in early societies, and many of the sex customs that did exist were just the reverse of ours. For example, among hunting and gathering peoples worldwide, the home is not only the property of the woman, but it is built by her, and if it's portable, carried around on her back when she moves. Among traditional, Chi among traditional Chinese, the women wore pants and the men wore skirts. Among people with, with covet customs, the women usually give birth in relative ease while their husbands writhe and howl and grind their teeth. And among the still pagan 12th century Irish to the horror of their chronicler, Gilderus uh, uh, Cambrinesis, it was the females who pissed standing up while the males squatted. With sex roles and customs, it is very hard to make an absolute statement. Women always do this. Men exclusively do that without having it immediately contradicted by some culture, some place, at some time. Indeed, the further back one goes in time, the more bisexual or gynandrous is the great mother. As Charlotte Wolf says in Love Between Women, perhaps the present day lesbian woman is the closest in character to ancient women with their fierce insistence on strength, independence, and integrity of consciousness. The first love object for both women and men is the mother. But in patriarchy, the son has to reject the mother to be able to dominate the wife as a real man. And the daughter must betray her for the sake of submitting to a man. In matriarchal society, this double burden of biological and spiritual betrayal does not occur. For both women and men, there is a close identification with the collective group of mothers, with Mother Earth and with the Cosmic Mother. And as psychoanalysts keep repeating, this identification is conducive to bisexuality in both sexes. But homosexuality in tribal or pagan men was not based on the rejection of the mother or of the female, as is often true in patriarchal culture. Rather, 
it was based on brother love, brother affinity as sons of the mother. And lesbianism among women was not based on a fear and rejection of men, but on the daughter's desire to reestablish union with the mother and with her own femaleness. The collective of mothers identified identified with by both sons and daughters was made up of strong, creative, productive, sexually free and visionary women. And so the ideal of womanliness for both sexes was not the enforced and mindless submissiveness of the oppressed as it is in patriarchal culture. In many of the most ancient images of the goddess, she is shown with both breast and a phallus, a hermaphroditic or as hermaphroditic, i.e. the bearded Ishtar. Divine bisexuality stressed her absolute power, especially power over her own sexuality, which was a spirit, which was a spiritual as well as an emotional physical expression. Male shamans in many primal cultures wore women's clothes and lived like women, often in homosexual relationships. The Neolithic goddess was served in her temples by bisexual or lesbian priestesses and by bisexual or homosexual priests. In the, in the disorder of the late Neolithic, in the transition from matriarchy to patriarchy, you listen, oh my God, eunuch priest served her, men who had castrated themselves in an orgiastic identification with the goddess. One branch of the Essenes, the, um, the Semitic sect with which Jesus was later associated in the Qumran on the Dead Sea, served as eunuch priests in the temple of Artemis at um, Ephesus, Ephesus on the west coast of Turkey. With what we know of this period, men were feeling under extreme pressure to identify with either the ancient great mother or with the militant new male gods and the devotion and devotion on both sides went to extremes because such acts had become politicized with the rise of patriarchal misogyny and a fant- um, fanaticizing sex phobia new in the world. Creative women and men in all ages have found rigid heterosexuality in conflict with being fully alive and aware on all levels, sexual, psychic, and spiritual, because it is a mental and emotional limitation as well as a physical one. It is as if on all levels of our being, we are split in half, locked into one half and forbidden the other. We are split against ourselves and against the self in the other by the moralistic opposition of natural polarities in the very depths of our souls. And the result is war, necrophilia, alienation at the root. And if we don't resolve this, we will all die of a mutual murder that is total genocide. As Easter Harding says in Women's Mysteries, Ancient and Modern, modern woman at the core of her being is cut off from the source of life. With rigidly imposed heterosexual roles, women and men also are emotionally and mentally stunted. Women are physically stunted. Compare us with the statue, the statues and reliefs of the Amazons or of the huge Celtic warrior women. In ancient Scotland, 
who were later invaded by Celts from the nor- from Northern Ireland, Ireland, some very mysterious and legendary warrior women lived. They um, they were Amazonian battle fighters and witch shamans, a lesbian bisexual sisterhood entrusted with the guardianship of their tribe's secrets and secret powers and visions. According to Jean Markel in Women of the Celts, all of the great Celtic warrior heroes were initiated into the profession of arms and also into the sacred mysteries of sex by these women. The Picts were the naked shock troops of all the Celtic nations. They went into battle, women and men, side by side, wearing only their blue body paint, sacred to the mother, sacred to the earth mother. They were called Picts. Uh, let's see, they were called Picts as they decorated their entire bodies with these blue tattoos of all the magic birds, beasts, and fish belonging to the great mother. They practiced communal sex rites and sometimes ritual cannibalism. The Celtic women generally were known for their great physical strength and ferocious bravery in battle. Roman historians wrote that among the Gauls, the women were almost as tall as the men and equal in courage. The Teutonic, as well as the Celtic tribes, were often led into battle by warrior queens, and the invading Roman soldiers reportedly feared the fighting women more than their male companions. As Brifault noted again and again, among primitive people not yet contaminated by the physical habits and role-playing of civilization, it was common to find the women equal in stature, it's in stature, often larger than the men, with greater musculature, uh, excuse me, greater musculature and endurance capacities. Among Stone Age skeletons of Neanderthals, it is often impossible to determine sex by size or weight of bones. Early females and males were almost equal in stature, equally strong. As seen in most ancient Paleolithic images of the goddess, the solid strength and massiveness of the female body was an ideal. And certainly the human race in earlier hominids couldn't have survived two to three million years of catastrophic earth changes if females had been as physically weak and mentally dependent during those long, hard ages as we are supposed to be today. Anne Cameron's Daughters of Copper Daughters of Copper Woman, stories of Northwest Pacific Indian women from Vancouver Island, gives us a real picture of the strengths needed by early women to be fit as mothers, as lovers, food and shelter producers, as wise women, as visionaries, as creators, and guardians of the whole people's culture. These females began undergoing rigorous physical training programs long before puberty to develop every strength of mind, of heart, of leg and arm muscle, and of spirit needed by them to be grown women, i.e. fully evolved human beings. And so the young women of the ancient matriarchal Sparta also developed skill and athletic, skilled and athletic bodies. When they married... The wedding ceremony included a wrestling match with their new mate. In civilized patriarchal society, on the other hand, a physically undeveloped, lobotomized, and desexualized woman can live what is called a, quote, normal life. Here are the memorable thoughts of the psychosurgeons. Quote, lobotomized women make good housekeepers. It is more socially acceptable to lobotomize women than men because creativity which the operation totally destroys, is, in this society, an expendable nullity in women, end quote. 
There is no such thing as partial liberation. No one can be economically free while sexually repressed and purificated. No one can be sexually liberated while an economic slave. No one can enjoy mental freedom while the body's labor and sexuality are exploited and conditioned by oppression. And if we pretend that we can be that we can free our spirits while the bodies, minds, and emotions of humanity are still straightened by biophobic and exploitive sexual, social, and economic ideologies, we delude ourselves. Freedom is all or nothing, and there is no freedom for males of any class or any color or any ethnic group while the female remains unfree. Excuse, Excuse me. Ancient bisexual woman was inventor, scientist, builder, artist, healer, producer of crafting culture, shaman, ecstatic visionary, warrior, and leader. This is our total potential. When our life energies are not divided against themselves and against us, blocked or distorted by cultural or religious stereotypes, this is just the beginning of our potential when our energies are able to flow out freely to create the world as symbolized by the self-sustaining power of the Gynandrous Mother. Chapter 12, Mysteries of the Throne, the Cave, and the Labyrinth. To return to our beginnings, all religion is about the mystery of creation. If the mystery of birth is the origin of religion, it is to the woman that we must look for the phenomenon that first made her aware of the unseen power. Primeval weep primeval woman, like the animals, probably first knew she was pregnant when she felt the first movement within her at the quickening. She was not aware of the male's part in conception, nor of the moment of inception of pregnancy. Of course, she would notice breast swelling, perhaps nausea, but doubtless she would understand this first quickening movement as the beginning of the process leading to birth. Among people worldwide who believe that woman is impregnated by the spirits or by the wind, This first movement would be the kinetic announcement of the entrance of the new spirit being into her body. Woman's awe at her capacity to create life is the basis of mystery. Earliest religious images show pregnancy rather than birth and nurturing as the numinous and magical state. Numerous Paleolithic figurines of women representing the pregnant goddess go back over 30,000 years. It is, not, it is not until the Middle Neolithic, circa 6,000 to 5,000 BC, that figures of the Great Mother holding a child appear. These are fascinating figures from Katal Hayuk and Hasalar in the region of modern Turkey. The first, carved in gray-green shtist, shows the goddess as two female bodies back to back, one nursing an infant and the other embracing a lover. The Hasselar clay statuette shows a nursing male, a nursing male child with his genitals near the mother's vulva. In both statues, the female is larger than the male. Both show the beginnings within the great mother religion of a companion worship of young male who is both her son and her lover. For many Neolithic centuries, this son lover of the, of the great goddess is the only thing approaching a male god to be found. And 
coupled with the mother, it remained a central image in later Near Eastern religions, i.e. Isis and the child Horus in Egypt, Mary with both the newborn and the dead Jesus in her arms. In pre-dynastic Egypt, the goddess of, of the women was Ta'ert, the great one, who is imaged as a pregnant hippopotamus standing on its hind legs. Figures of Ta'ert are among the earliest Egyptian amulets, and her worship continued until the coming of Christianity, and probably secretly among women for centuries after. Christian and other patriarchal priesthoods uh, have never been able to help, have never been any help to women in the great female experiences of menstruation, pregnancy, childbirth, and nursing. Clearly the pregnant goddess of the Cro-Magnon Caves, Ta'ur, and later, and later goddesses of pregnancy and birth were shaped out of women's needs and experiences and beliefs. This is the original transformation mystery, the primordial birth in which we struggle alone facing death and pain in order to create life within the cosmic womb of the unknown. Only women are the, only women are ever truly alone as the universe is alone with herself and birth is the supreme paradox of aloneness when a woman in sweating and groaning solitude brings forth the continuity of human life. Men can only imitate this experience by participating in the goddess mysteries of rebirth in the sacred caves. And in fact, worldwide, men's original rituals were imitations of the female mysteries of menstruation and childbirth. Images dating from 5000 BC. This, um, let's see, of childbirth. Images of the pregnant goddess were also found in the excavations of Tel Haraf dating back 5000 BC. This goddess is shown sitting on the earth, embodying the earth that belongs to her in ritual, uh, belongs to her in ritual and custom to sit on something has has the symbolic meaning of taking possession of it. In later matriarchal times, she was the throne. The throne symbolized her lap. The queen came to power by sitting on this lap or womb of the goddess. So becoming one with her power among the among the Ashanti of West Africa, there was a cult of the throne, a, a giant throne and giant throne replicas have been found in the Ashanti graves. The black goddess was worshipped throughout Ashanti territory. All the great mountains were seen as the goddess sitting on earth. The mountain was the original throne womb. It combines the symbols of earth, cave, bulk, height, and immortality. In the towering mountain overlooking the land is embodied the enormous strength of the goddess. Throughout Thracian, Macedonian, Greek, and Cretan lands are mountains with huge thrones at their summits, carved laboriously from rock. These are the empty thrones waiting for the goddess to take her seat. This custom was taken over by later patriarchal kings. To be enthroned is to be empowered. 
i.e. to receive the power of the great mother and her mandate to rule. This is why Egyptian paintings and statues depict the small mortal king sitting on the throne lap of the huge goddess Isis. In this way, the king was reborn or made immortal and thereby given the sacred power to rule over the people by the mother. He had true power only as her son. The cave as the womb of the earth goddess was considered by the ancients to be the repository of mystic influences. In the original cosmology, a cave was the symbol of the whole world, providing passage for the dead and for the rebirths of souls. Many tribal people today still hold the belief that their first mythic ancestors emerged from caverns or mounds in the earth. The cave was the home of our Ice Age ancestors when they were making the transition from hominids to homo, to homo sapien. Paleolithic caves were the matrix of internalized consciousness, womb-like, skull-like, tomb-like. Animal souls were believed to live in the dark, echoing caverns. This is where one went to commune with the deepest, most resonant and awesome powers. The wall paintings of animals and humans in the innermost sanctuaries could be reached only with great difficulty along winding paths, narrow ledges, slippery and dangerous passages, often crawling on hands and knees. These were the narrowing winding passageways of birth and rebirth. I am the way and the life. This was the primordial revelation of the great mother. As G. Rachel Levy observes, early people conceived the, the divine body as the road traveled by itself and its seeker. The great mother was the body of life. She was also the way that must be traveled to realize life. It was, it was in the spiral or the labyrinth that the way had to be danced or walked in all the rites of the mother throughout the ages and the world the way is always connected with a cave womb and with a maze-like spiraling entrance and exit. Labyrinths situated at cave entrances are always presided over by, uh, by a mythical woman. Among ancient Cretans, as among present-day Hopis in, Amer in the American Southwest, the earth womb is depicted as a maze and the mythic place of emergence of a whole people and of the individual soul is called the place of birth or rebirth. Visually, the Cretan maize womb and the Hopi maize womb are identical. In Hindu tradition, both the convolutions of the brain and the eightfold stages of the mind or the manas are identified with the winding spiral form of the labyrinth. A labyrinth both creates and protects st the still center or the heart, allowing entry only to the initiated. Before larger knowledge is revealed, old preconceptions must be dissolved by the, by the psychic and ecstatic re-entry into original cosmic womb cave of the mother. The pathways between the two worlds were trodden by humans in magic dances and rituals. Perhaps the human collective actually generated as well as absorbed the life forces of the goddess in these rites. 
since the roads taken by the divine power are themselves currents of energy. Among hunting and gathering peoples, the shamans still go into caves to experience visions, dreams, and spiritual rebirth, and to gain healing powers through resonant communion with the dead. The dead are especially sacred to the goddess since they directly partake of her being, spirits awaiting rebirth through her physical manifestations. The familial bull roar, still in use among Aboriginal people, produces the terrible roaring sound of the spiral, the strange whirlwind of passage between the two worlds. Extremely complex ideas were expressed through the symbol of the labyrinth. First, the initiate had to find the way through the underworld, the womb of the mother, going through symbolic death to be reborn again through her on a larger psychic scale or psychic level. Simultaneously, by dancing the winding and unwinding spiral, the initiate reached back to the still heart of the cosmos and so immortality in her. The dance would have been combined with sexual rites and the taking of some hallucinogen like legendary Soma. In the resulting illumination, Soma and self were experienced as one with the cosmic self in orgasmic ego death. The ecstatic center of the labyrinth was the no-mind center of orgasm experienced as death, creative madness, and the loss of the conditioned self. Sexual magic was not practiced for the sake of fertility, especially in early times when no necessary connection was seen between the two. Sexual magic was practiced for the sake of ecstatic self-transcendence and sexual spiritual fusion of the human with the cosmic all. Prana, or life current, in the mythic Indian thought is interrelated with sexual energy and can be directed by breathing techniques, mind and breath united and rhythmically directed towards a chosen goal is the basis for sexual magic. Breath air is linked with mind, the creatrix of ideas. They are experienced as identical. The breath or prana is used by the yogi to compel the upward surge of Kundalini, the sleeping serpent, at the base of the spine, the sexual chakra, Kundalini, the serpent power, is dormant cosmic fire, and she, activated through controlled and concentrated breathing, rises through the six lotuses or body centers to unite to, in the seventh, highest center with pure consciousness. With this union, liberation is attained, which is true nature and union with cosmic self. Kundalini, the mystic fire, is also express, expressed sexually, as in Tantra Yoga. Here is the awakening of the great magic power with the Shakti Kundalini, the cosmic movement, which is Shakti, and her movement in the human body, which is Kundalini. Their ultimate union bringing great power, the eternally spiraling serpent force through which is experienced cosmic timelessness. In Tibetan mystery schools, the breath plays a vital part in the process of dying. If consciousness is retained to the last through proper knowledge and concentration, then the breath or soul passes over consciously to the after death of the organism. There is a similar thought in the Egyptian Book of the Dead, based on the mysteries of Isis and Osiris. Consciousness must be retained to and through the moment of death to enable the soul to take the right path, the way, through the underworld. 
concentrated unity of the psyche brings release from the power of death. The same method appears in the secret garden of the golden of the secret of the golden flower, a Chinese book deriving from ancient matriarchal Taoist ideas. Jungians pay respect to these mythic uh, to these mystic and symbolic perceptions of ancient peoples, but still fear the female realms. This Western rationalist prejudice and fear distorts Jungian commentary on the timeless ritual transformations of the labyrinth. Quote, in all cultures, the labyrinth has the meaning of an entangling and confusing representation of the world of matriarchal consciousness. It can be traversed only by those who are ready for a special initiation into the mysterious world of the collective unconsciousness or the collective unconscious, end quote. In Indian mystic symbolism, the multiplicity of this world is shown by the interpretation of the upward male triangles, phallic, or the downward female triangles, the vulva, the ascending and descending vortices of creative energy. This vulva image, the descending triangle, which signifies cosmic energy spiraling down into manifestation through matter, is a very ancient symbol. It has been found in Paleolithic caves inscribed on stone blocks lying face downwards on the ground and within engraved, uh, engraved stone circles in the cavern's depths. Ancient people believed that power resided in images themselves, or rather in the, resonant be the resonance between the image and the thing imagined. And this belief still lives in all of us. Symbols continue to have great power over the human mind and heart. Contemporary hunting and gathering people, such as the Australian Aborigines, maintain connections with mythical ancestors by tracing sacred paintings and dream time maps on the walls of secret caves. We can imagine that ancient women gained cosmic energy by touching and tracing the sacred vulva sign of the great goddess, just as initiates gained the power and insight of his ecstatic death and rebirth by tracing and retracing the sacred spirals of the labyrinth the womb, tomb, maze of the great earth mother. Chapter 13, the cult of the dead. The idea of the living dead can be traced far back also the Paleolith to Paleolithic times where it existed first among the Neanderthals who buried their dead wrapped in the fetal position, the bodies and skeletons painted red. Neanderthals also set up bear skull shrines deep in their caves. Next came the Cro-Magnons of the Western and Southern Europe. They displaced the, they displaced the Neanderthals, but also interbred with them and followed many of the same burial practices. They had a cult of the dead and a cult of the skull, also burying their dead curled up and dabbed with white oak, with red ochre. This ochre painting of bodies and bones with the magic life color of blood, um, or manna was for Countless millennia believed to give life to the dead who were buried lovingly with cherished possessions in the floors of caves where they had lived. The cave was the womb of the mother and she also gave birth. She who also gave birth would give rebirth. Human religious ideas of death and resurrection go back at least this far. From these burial practices of the Neanderthals and Cro-Magnons, we can assume their belief 
in themselves as indivisible spiritual entities. Though their, though their material lives were primitive by our standards, in their, uh, in their aesthetic and spiritual iconographies, they are revealed as deeply feeling and evolved beings. They conceived and experienced a union between the divine cosmic cycle, the cycles of animal, plant, and human life, and the recent dead. All ancient and contemporary Aboriginal people conceive death as naturally continuous with life. Perhaps the need for unity and reunion expressed by these ceremonies is a first acknowledgement of a conscious sense of separation in the evolution of human consciousness. At any rate, in the first human religious rites, birth, resurrection, reincarnation were believed to occur within the body of the mother as birth, death, and rebirth occur in the great cycles of nature. The further back one goes into ancient cultures, the more the holy enters nearly every phase and activity of life, being born, giving birth, making pots, digging food, planting seeds, making tools, hunting, building a fire, all are acts whose major aspects fall within the sacred sphere. Social groups have magic religious foundations. Rites of transition from one life stage to another required group participation in ritualized expression, all designed to keep the individual psyche united and in balance while passing through crises. Death was one of those major life events requiring ritual participation by the group aimed at reharmonizing the survivors as well as easing the passage of the dead. Even after people left the caves and took up living in small settled villages, the dead continued to be buried close by. In the matriarchal town, <clears throat> in the matriarchal town of Middle Neolithic Talhayuk, generations of the dead were buried under the floors of the homes beneath the sleeping platforms. In this way, they continued to participate in the everyday lives of the living. Their presence was a recognized part of the ongoing life of the, matri the matrifocal group, and women shamans performed all death ceremonies. Like magic weavers, they connected the collective dream state in which the past, present, and future psychic and physical realities merge with the textured realms of the dead. Drugs such as hallucinogenic mushrooms were used as one means of perceiving the underlying realities of this mystic connection. Funeral rites also always included some form of self-wounding. Since blood accompanies birth, the moon cycles, food killing, and other crucial life stages, as well as death. Blood is the physical counterpart of the mysterious terrestrial and cosmic life flows, and so women's transformation mysteries were all blood mysteries. Chapter 14. The Mother of Wild Animals and the Dance. Commenting on almost total commenting on the almost total blindness of male historians vis-a-vis -vis <coughs> excuse me <coughs> commenting on the almost total blindness of the male historians vis-a-vis -vis the obvious female orientation of the upper paleolithic William Erwin Thompson writes, quote, 
Because we have separated humanity from nature, subject from object, values from analysis, knowledge from myth, and universities from the universe, it is enormously difficult for anyone but a poet or a mystic to understand what is going on in the holistic um, mythopoeic thought of ice of the ice age humanity. The language we use to discuss the past speaks of tools, hunters, and men. When every statue and painting we discover cries out to us that this ice age humanity was a culture of art, the love of animals and women. Gathering, gathering is as important as hunting, but only the hunter is discussed. Storytelling is discussed, but the storyteller is a hunter rather than an old priestess of the moon. Initiation is imagined, but the initiate is not the young girl in Minark about to wed, be wed to the moon, but a young man about to become a great hunter, end quote. For the historians leave blank, our imaginations can fill in with bright pictures that, uh, with bright pictures like those covering the sacred cave walls. We know that women's religious rights were never separable from a, from a totality of art, magic, and social and physical realities. The matrifocal group organized its power into a religious and cultural human expression through the medium of art. Art was the tool of the connection, the manifest vision, expressing experience of a single life-giving principle conserved in the changeless other world of the deep caves, where there are where there is perpetual darkness and time becomes spatial, resonant, and static. In such a standing silence, as within a giant living skull, the dream images make themselves known. The great goddess was the mother of wild animals. The inner recesses <clears throat> and womb walls of the caverns were alive with magic pictures of her beasts. She was herself an animal, all the animals. In many of the early images, she wears an animal mask. As in ancient Chinese Taoism, so in Western pagan religions, the female principle was the transforming animal, the energy of metamorphosis and hence evolution. The brilliant rush of European animal imagery from Cro-Magnon through Celtic, Nordic and Teutonic art and incorporated into medieval bestiaries and illuminated manuscripts expressed this primal dynamic vision of evolutionary energy as a surge of spirit into multitudinous forms. The goddess kept her various animal shapes for many thousands of years, and among them, the doe, the owl, the hare, the vulture, the pig, the cow, the wild mare, the lioness, the crow, the crane, the salmon, the jackal, the hermaphroditic snail, the serpent, the wren, the butterfly, and the chrysalis, the spider. Early human attitude toward animals was totemistic. Totem means related through the mother. The blood clan's solidarity was identified with some specific plant or animal. Through the, totem, the, through the totem, the life of the human group and the ongoing life of nature were made inseparable. This is the meaning of sacrament, the absorption by humans of the non-human or cosmic flow of forms. The secret spirit lives in and through the multitude of plant and animal form, forms which the goddess can assume at will. This means that any tree or beast, bird or fish or insect is symbolically, potentially her and must be related to with magic and respect. 
Individual members of a species die, but the group form remains, is permanent, and is one of the great mother's ideal forms. This, oh. Let's see. Um, this is the primal conception of reincarnation. Later European pagans believed in individual soul reincarnation through many forms, animal and human and demonic, as the mechanism of biological as well as spiritual evolution. The animism of primal peoples has been called, quote, childish. In fact, it is a profound exper experiential perception of the evolutionary relation between all life forms as manifestations of the original one, the first cell from which all life multiplied, the original cosmic egg. When human survival depends on such a sensitive rapport with the environment as it always has and always will, such a conception is not infantile but crucial. Human survival does, in, does indeed depend on a sacramental relation to nature. Now that this relation has been betrayed and destroyed, we know how important it is, and it, it was and is. The sacramental bond between our earliest human ancestors and the natural world was the primary factor in our evolution, not simply as a physical species, but as, a, uh, as, a, as conscious beings. For this bonding set up a resonance in which all art, all religious ritual, all magic, alchemic science, all spiritual striving for illumination was born. As primal people have always experienced it, when you look and listen to nature, something appears. Something always speaks. Animism is still a valid relationship. If modern man neither sees nor hears, the fault is in his dead sensorium. In primitive belief, no animal can be killed against its wish. When a member of a species is struck down, the one is wounded. Therefore, the hunter must fast and pray to the animal spirit before the hunt, not simply to ask its pardon, but to gain its ascent to being, um, its ascent to being killed. The hunted animal is seen, <coughs> excuse me, a hunted animal is seen to give itself to the hunter, as human food, while its spirit returns to, to the group form. Because men did all the large game hunting and felt themselves to be tracking and slaying brother and sister animals, magic children like themselves of the of Mother Earth, we know they felt guilt and sought its resolution. After the spilling of blood, one must restore harmony. Woo! Mm -mm. Listen, I'm going to read that again. Because men did all the large game hunting and felt themselves to be tracking and slaying brother and sister animals, magic children like themselves of Mother Earth, we know they felt guilt and sought its resolution. After the spilling of blood, one must restore harmony with the dead the dead animal, and with the mother of animals. 
as its soul persists through the multiplicity of lives and deaths. Cave paintings from the upper <laughs> cave paintings from the upper Paleolithic show stick figure male hunters or entranced shamans alongside beautifully rendered bison and other game animals. The hunter's or shaman's spear may be shown juxtaposed uh, with the vulvas of female animals. They were seeing the animal's wound as a magic vulva of the goddess and trying to establish a union or symbolic resolution within the violence of killing. As penis to vulva, which bleeds and heals itself, so spear to wound. Rock carvings and paintings found in North Africa, identical in theme to the European cave paintings, make this analogy between penis and arrow. Goddesses, vulva, and animal wound with circular lines returning the energy in a vulva to vulva cycle. In all these Stone Age depictions of the hunt, there is not one image of aggressive or bloodthirsty hunters engaged in wanton slaughter. There are only images of prayerful petition and worshipful observation, baby. As Thompson points out, these Paleolithic paintings of vulvas as magic wounds that heal themselves or give birth to new life continue as symbolic images through Western religious history. Medieval paintings show Christ exposing his wound from which blood and water flowed during the crucifixion as from a uterus in childbirth. Uh oh. <laughs> oh. Uh oh. Quote The labial wound in the side of Christ is an expression that the male shaman, to have magical power, must take on the power of woman. The magical labial wound is the seal of the resurrection and an expression of the myth of eternal uh, recurrence. From Christ to the Fisher King of the Grail legends, the man suffering from a magical wound is no ordinary man. He is the man who has transcended the, the duality of sexuality, the man with a vulva, the shamanic androgyne, end quote. Y'all ain't heard. These pagan meanings were kept alive, not in Orthodox Christianity, certainly, but in the Gnostic tradition, which recognized magic bestial, uh, uh, my, excuse me, magic bisexuality, <clears throat> the alchemical, the alchemical, the alchemical androgyne, the necessity of the male to experience his female wound. The Grail legend has been traced back to the Neolithic Near Eastern goddess religion, but in fact goes back much further to the sacred Cro-Magnon caves and the Stone Age hunters attempt to resolve bloodletting guilt symbolically and ecstatically through a fusion of his sex spirit with the magic vulva wound of the mother goddess. Ritual cannibalism began with the same symbolic desire. Not to solely, not solely to procreate, but to participate in the magic life, death, rebirth process. 
Among primal people, the totemic animal is sometimes eaten as a sacrament by the group, or it is totally avoided as a group taboo. Either way, human hunger, killing, and eating are felt as unbalancing acts, which must be reharmonized through sacramental rites. Ritual cannibalism, doubtless, began with sharing excuse me, began with shared eating of the totem animal, a taking in of the animal's life force by the group to participate in its death, in its lifeblood, is to partake of its eternal rebirth to the mother or in the mother. Where it occurred in the world, ritual cannibalism, like hunting, was predominantly or exclusively a male activity. We can see it in early man's desire not to separate himself and to, uh, we can see it in early man's desire not to separate himself and to reestablish magic bonds with the mother after the spilling of her blood. This sacred cannibalism is still practiced symbolically in the Christian communion. Another mode of group intoxication of ecstatic rebalancing is the dance. Uh, is the dance. Sacred circles made with stones are found in the deep Paleolithic caves, and in them the traces of human feet that danced around and around. Cave paintings show the shaman dancing, uh, show the shaman dancing in animal skins and antler headdress. The footmarks on the cave floors reveal generations of ritual dancing by all women, men, and children. Dancing to and with the spirits of the animals in the most ancient human ceremony that we know. Masked dances like dancing the maze were a deliberate means of approach to the biomystical animal world and to the great mother within and beyond all forms. <coughs> Um, beyond all forms. <clears throat> the pantomimic dance is the essence of each and every mystery function. And Themis, Jane Ellen Harrison describes how the primal dancing groups listen to this closely. Jane Ellison, Jane Ellen Harrison describes how the primal dancing group projects its aroused energies outward into the creation of a God, beginning with mimetic rites, wearing animal masks, feathers, horns, and claws, dancing to a common rhythm, common excitement. Members of the group become emotionally supercharged and one. Initially, no God concept is involved, but the collective emotion is overwhelmingly felt as something, quote, more than the experience of the individual as something dominant and external, end quote. Um, Dithram, Dithram, Dithram meant, meant originally song of birth. The ecstatic choric dance literally gave birth to the God. Group emotional, oh, group emotional energies, group emotional energy becomes the, quote, raw material of the Godhead. In time, a leader of the dance is slowly differentiated. The dancers become the audience, worshipers of something beyond. Prayer and sacrifice reveals that severance is complete.
that severance is complete. The community of emotion ceases, restructured into hierarchic observance, and the primal chorus loses all sense or memory that the God is themselves. We forget that God is always ourselves. Harrison's description shows the social and sheer biological origins of um, chthonic roots in physical, collective, ecstatic energies. Like main, ooh, like many, like many early 20th century students of ancient mythology, however, Harrison's thoughts reveal a Freudian influence, a belief the creation of God is only a one-way process. Like Freud, Harrison sourced human cultural expression, art, dance, religion, in unsatisfied desire and seemed to agree that all experience of the sacred was reducible to psychological projection. Witness the analytic urge to demystify the mystery. The Freudian school knew no quantum physics or energies beyond the human. But there are other dimensions than the spatially, temporally, temporally tangible, even though the linear mind is not structured to perceive them. Spiritual or magical experience is an impingement of these other dimensions, other force fields into our ordinary rational reality. A dancing group can project its entranced emotion into a godhead. Through entranced and through a trance and rhythmic opening of psychic channels, it can also in, uh, introject the Godhead, pulling down, right? Transhuman powers. Both directions of this process can really occur simultaneously. The group generates and renews the power. The power generates and renews the group. The spiraling process gives birth in both directions. Later, priestly ideas that the gods demand constant human supplication, obeisance, and abasement are wrong and exploitative. But they derive from this genuine primordial perception of an energy exchange between humans and transhuman transhuman powers, a vibratory field communication that must go both ways for the connection to work. Chimpanzees do rain dances for no logical reason other than to reconnect their animal energies with the transhuman energies of rain, thunder and lightning the original chemical dance of life. And the apocryphal Jesus says, quote, the whole on high hath part in our dancing. Who danceth not, knoweth not what cometh to pass. Mm-mm. This idea is incorporated in the Gnostic round dance, but its origins are not in Christianity by any means. But in the earliest pagan Paleolithic sacred cave dances, even beyond that in the dances of chimpanzees and beyond that in the first circling dances of molecules, of atoms, of quarks around the cosmic spiral. 
the sacred dance takes us beyond the God of mora- uh, of morality and back to the goddess of ecstasy, beyond obviescence to social hierarchy and back to an original communion with sheer evolutionary energy. That is why such Gnostic texts were branded uh, apocryphal and why the medieval Gnostics were persecuted and burned at the stake by the Orthodox Church because they spoke a pagan and primordial truth, old as the universe, who is the first dancer. One of the earliest images, one of the earliest images we know of the mother of the the mother of wild animals and the uh, the mother of wild animals and the dance is the Venus of LaSalle, a bas-relief from a cave in the Dorgonne Valley, France, uh, dating back 19,000 BC. This icon shows the great mother standing with a bison horn upheld in her right hand. The horn is a lunar crescent and the relief is painted with red ochre, the magic color of menstruation and birth. Such a figure presided over the mass shamanic dances and the circle dances of communion with all animals, all life, in which blood, woman, moon, bison, horn, birth, magic, magic, the cycle of life are analogized in... Uh, in a continuous resonance or harmony of sacred energies. The LaSalle great mother holding the lunar horn became the virgin and the unicorn, one horn of medieval legend. The marvelous tapestry of the Middle Ages, all woven by women, frequently tell the story of the unicorn who may be touched and tamed only by a chaste virgin. As Thompson notes, the unicorn is a lunar symbol of the ancient religion of Europe, the great mother religion and the ritual drama of the macho hunter chasing and slaying this magic beast represents a trace memory of the shift from the moon worshiping matrifocal European pagan society to the patriarchal sun worship of the Roman empire and the Christian church in quote, such traces of the paleolithic hunt goddess and her magic relation to all the beasts can be found throughout European folklore art alchemy, witchcraft, and the other heresies. They can also be found throughout the world, Asia, Africa, and the Americas. They are found everywhere human beings are found because they represent our original heart-mind. Among the Stone Age cave paintings are images of great women with upraised arms, some with their arms supported by small, smaller male figures on either side. Legendarily, sacred women stood in this position during the hunt, acting as receivers of cosmic energy. Among the African Stone Age cliff paintings found by Mary Leakey in central Tanzania, the hunt dancers are almost always women who move their bodies in the shapes and gestures of the animals. Among the Kalahari Bushmen today, a shaman woman performs a special invocation dance on the dawn of the day of the hunt, invoking the protective dawn star Venus, who is called the hunter, and communing with the spirits of the animals who will voluntarily die to feed humans. Among these Kalahari aboriginals also, the Milky Way was created by a young girl in Minark, who, feeling lonely, threw the ashes of her fire into the night sky to create a friendly light for her people. 
the African Hottentots sing and chant to the rain spirit, who is a pregnant moon goddess called Goro. That quote, thou who has painted thy body red, thou who does not drop the menses, end quote. Before their invocation dance, they paint their bodies red with ochre, which is called called Gorod after her blood red color. Australian aboriginals pour blood over their sacred stones and ritually paint themselves red after their dances, saying the paint is really women's menstrual blood. When we think of the 21,000-year-old Venus LaSalle stained with red ochre and holding up the hunter's lunar crescent, horn in the sacred cave, we know all of these same rites, images, and analogies mean. Um, We know what all these same, we know what all these same rites, images, and analogies mean and where they come from. They come from our original selves as children of the great mother, as sisters and brothers of all magical and of all her magic animals. The rites, icons, and dances conceive the earth as the body of the mother and try to restore harmony lost, the harmony lost when she is wounded. They aim. They aim to relate to, they aim to relate the beast's wounds to her magic vulva, which bleeds with the moon and heals itself again and again. And this way, the species of the animals may be renewed through rebirth after the killing of individual members. Surely in these dances and rituals, we see the world meaning of all religious symbolism, but more clearly and beautifully because closer to to the source. Western history does not show us any evolution toward greater spirit, greater meaning, or greater culture. The Western Roman Christian uh, contribution to the world, when we look at it, has been almost entirely in the area of technology and of analytical intellect combined with a notorious spiritual cultural alienation and perhaps the loneliest individuals the planet has ever seen. What there, uh, what there still is of spirit, of poetry, of coherent meaning, of symbolic truth in the world did not come from us meaning Western society. It was there at the beginning among our Stone Age ancestors. Their vision, their cosmology, their intuited truth and sacred analogies run like bright red threads through the tapestry of Western history. Whatever is still alive and vibrating in patriarchal religions, especially Christianity, when traced to its source, is found to be one of these bloody living fibers retained or stolen from the original Paleolithic cosmology woven by these Ice Age people out of their primal pagan experience of the Great Mother and her magic world. What has followed them in the mythic, religious, spiritual, and psychic realms at least has been no great advance, but a devolution or a de-evolution, a corruption, a narrowing and hardening, an atrophy of vision and heart. Our Stone Age ancestors would have no trouble understanding these words of uh, Smohala, a, a, Nez, a, Nez Pierce, a Nez Perce who sang the primal truth to the white man's world of 19th century business and resource development oriented America. Quote, my young men shall never work. 
Men who work cannot dream and wisdom comes in dreams. You ask me to plow the ground. Shall I take a knife and tear my mother's breasts? Then when I die, she will not take me to her bosom to rest. You ask me to dig for stone. Shall I dig under her skin for bones? Then why, Then when I die, I cannot enter her body and be born again. You ask me to cut grass and make hay and sell it and be rich like the white man. But how can I cut off my mother's hair? It is bad law and my people cannot obey it. I want my people to stay with me here. All the dead humans will come to life again. Wait here in the house of our ancestors and be ready to meet in the body of our mother, end quote. So that is the end of read the reading of the Great Cosmic Mother, Rediscovering the Religion of the Earth by Monica Zhu and Barbara Moore. Um, we I will read again tomorrow, um, picking up with section three, which is entitled Women's Culture and Religion in Neolithic Time. And um, I'll probably read about four chapters tomorrow. Um, so look in the details below this video to find the link to join the book club on this book. So this, so every first and third Sunday, I will be leading a discussion on the chapters that we've been reading up until this point of the book. Um, I will have prompt questions available in this study group. So please check out the study group. I'll have prompt questions that can help you extract from the book or the chapters that we're reading, what is most important, what you need, and what we'll kind of be going more into during the classes. Um, so this Sunday from 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time will be our group discussion. So you'll find the details again in the Facebook um, Great Cosmic Mother Book Club. And um, also, you know, I accept donations. I'm doing a lot of studying and preparation for this piece of work. And um, also... Um, uh, you can email me at releaseheartcenter at gmail.com. That's releaseheartcenter at gmail.com. You can email me there if you have any questions outside of this discussion. And also, I want to encourage people to be looking on my YouTube channel because I'm also hosting lives um, periodically about the workshop that I have been holding. I started um, last Saturday on January 8th. I will be hosting a workshop every Saturday from January 8th to February 19th on America's Pluto Returns. Um, this workshop is for everyone, but it really is drawing out the importance in particular of people of color and marginalized people and how we should be moving around this dynamic once in a lifetime event. Um, so also be looking through the page for um, updates on the um, the in, the title of the workshop is America's First Pluto Returns um, Apocalypse or New Dawn Rising. So check out those things. Email me if you have any questions. Like um, like subscribe and share with your friends. And I'm telling you, if you just listen to one reading, you will see how much you can be fed from this book. This is my fourth time reading the book from cover to cover. It is amazing. It is the game changer. It was written in 1987 and it could have been written yesterday because it's almost prophetic. So I just want to encourage you the first beginning of the book, 
does, you know, I mean, I love every detail of it, but it can be a little, you know, um, scientific and archaeological and stuff. But I'm telling you, we're getting somewhere. And so you really have to stick with the whole reading of the book. You won't be disappointed. Encourage others to check in, both men and women and those from our LGBTQIA family. Everybody can be fed from this book. So that's the that's the you know, that's the call I want to make. So anyway, my name is Cassandra Floyd, also known as Iapo Wangina. Check me out on Facebook, Twitter, um, Instagram, all those names. Uh, Iapo Wangina are all those um, all those social media sites. And also um, my release.heart.center on IG. So thanks again for tuning in and I will see you again tomorrow.